everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norris Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So running a multi-unit franchise is really, really hard. There are a ton of logistical headaches, ranging from managing a nationwide supply chain that serves thousands of customers a day, all the way to retaining talent in an industry rife with high employee turnover. And to make matters even more difficult, restaurants often operate at relatively low margins in a hyper-competitive market. So finding success at scale in the multi-unit industry takes quite a bit of operational know-how. And that is why I am delighted to announce Leo and Oliver Kremer as today's podcast guests. Leo and Oliver are the co-founders and co-CEOs of Dos Toros, which is a leader in new age dining and a personal favorite of mine. Now, for those of you who haven't yet had a Dos Toros burrito, I am very excited for you all to get to know the brand as Leo and Oliver are two of the funniest founders I've ever met. They're also incredibly genuine in sharing their founding story and how they've built Dos Toros into the success that it is today. So in today's podcast, we'll discuss topics ranging from Dos Torres's maniacal focus on consistently serving a high quality product, as well as the thought that goes into providing a delightful customer experience. Additionally, Leo and Oliver share their perspective on what KPIs and metrics they track and the consistent patterns they see across successful multi-unit businesses. So why don't we get started? Hey guys, how's it going? Awesome. Good. Hey John, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. I'm pretty excited about this episode, just given I usually do one-on-ones, but instead today, I guess we get a two-for-one special. You know, it's, it's uh, yeah, same price. It's a BOGO. And, yeah, um, you know, we got quite a lot of mind meld being uh, how much time we spend together every day. So yeah, one and a half, maybe. I was, I was just going to say one and a half. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Talk about synergies. Well, I'd love to finesse that into a two-for-one burrito special. But why don't we kick things off here with a little bit on your background and how you guys started Dos Toros. Sure. This is Oliver speaking. I actually went to college at Washington University in St. Louis, and I was involved in an internet startup back in college, actually helping students find off-campus housing, and ultimately decided that it was not worth too much of my time pursuing, and all the while uh, was missing desperately missing the burritos that we both grown up eating in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so uh, after school, pretty much dove right in with this guy to learning about how to not just eat burritos, but how to make them. Right. I was a musician before Dos Toros, playing in a bunch of rock and roll bands, specifically with Third Eye Blind, which was my big rock band that I played with for a couple of years, which was awesome. And then as that was kind of winding up and, and I was wanting to do something else, Oliver was graduating and we've been talking about this burrito thing for a long time. And yeah, it, it wasn't a whole bunch of other awesome opportunities coming, right. coming our way. No. Uh, <laughs> Just given right. it was like 2000 recession. I was a finance major in college and I didn't have top of my class grades. So mm. jobs weren't necessarily forthcoming. And very early on, we started cooking. We had one specific kind of big dinner party that we threw for a bunch of family and friends. And we just found a bunch of recipes online, went to a, a pretty really legit kind of uh, grocery store in Oakland where we got all these Mexican specialty products. And uh, we just basically cooked and, and threw together a pretty big feast. And it was a big success. Yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> say it was a fully baked product at that moment. But like, you know, we're not 
really chefs at home. And I, I, it, it certainly gave us the confidence that, you know, if we tinker with these recipes, you know, for over the next year, we can kind of reverse engineer our way to these the flavors that we know really well in terms of, you know, how things should could taste and, and look and feel. Right. So then with the recipe that's out now, is that the original or are you guys now scientifically iterating to create the hypothetical best fast casual burrito ever made? I think we're on Carnitas version like 3.7. Yeah, 0.2. Thank you. You know, we're we're always kind of iterating and making tweaks. So no, I mean, the the recipes have all evolved over time. And continue to do so. Yeah, Um, because we just want to keep getting better. And I... that's something we kind of, I think, also figured out is that we doesn't have to be a static anything, not a static product and, and not a static brand experience for our guests or, or for our aesthetic or design or, or for our operational systems, that it, it can all kind of keep evolving. Kaizen. Kaizen, indeed. So I love that principle and mentality, but how do you actually go about supporting that? I mean, is that through consumer taste tests or is there any data that you guys use? I mean, how exactly do you go about iterating on a burrito? So we started out with two data points. Oliver's, I'm a data point. Oliver's taste buds and my taste buds. <laughs> and uh, I mean, there's truth in that in terms of us. You know, we really felt like we were squarely our own core customer. And again, we we'd been eating and mm. kind of learning and tasting burritos for you know three to five days a week for 20 years. It was not some new kind of cuisine that we were trying to figure out. We basically knew what we were going for. Right. It was more about uh, how can we kind of as Leo said earlier, reverse engineer to kind of achieve these these flavors and these flavor profiles. And now it's just iteration. Gladwell talks about 10,000 hours. Mm. I think 10,000 burritos probably gets you to max. <laughs> 5,000. Yeah. I wanted to say that when we had that first cookout, that first feast, and we got, we did get a, quite a lot of positive feedback and warm reception from our friends and family. Sure. And I, I feel like we kind of had like a, a why not us kind of moment where it was like, just because we've never grown up cooking and we don't have a family background in the industry and you know we are not Mexican, why can't we recreate this food that we love so much and transport it to a place where we think there really is a, a need and a desire? Right. I, mean, I think one of the biggest reasons we were skeptical that we could do it was because we felt that no one else had really done it and we couldn't figure out why that was. And so we, we spent a lot of time around New York City just tasting and visiting local taquerias and trying to get a sense of kind of whether there were great burritos already or or if not, kind of why there weren't. Right, We weren't the first ones to identify the need. Indeed. For great burritos. I think in New York City and really in so many places outside of, you know, California and the San Francisco Bay Area specifically. Yeah. And for something much better than a boring Chipotle burrito, if I might fire some shots over here. Yeah. But what's funny hearing you guys talk about this audience of two and how you're really just using your taste buds at first. I get grilled pretty often by comm agencies or CMOs vetting whether or not the podcast is a good fit for them. And they always ask me, oh, who's your audience? And my unsophisticated answer is always, oh, the audience I cater to is really just me. It's just whatever questions I think are interesting to ask in the moment. And I mean, yes, there's an audience of thousands, but given the lack of podcast analytics tools, I know as much about the audience as I know about quantum mechanics. So with that aside off my chest, we'd love to shift more towards the business side of things. So could you give the audience a metric that conveys a sense of scale for how large the Dos business is today? Sure. So we opened our first location 
in Union Square in New York on October 30th, 2009. Today, we have 20 locations open. We're at 14 in Manhattan. We have wow. two in Brooklyn, and we have four locations in Chicago. So we are now a quote-unquote national <laughs> chain or something. Right. <laughs> nice. Yeah, two markets. <laughs> and then we're actually getting ready to open our 21st location at the end of this week, which is very exciting. That's awesome. Congrats to you guys there. And can you walk us through the process of opening up new locations and the headache that that entails? Well, it's, you know, it's gotten easier. <laughs> we, we, I mean, we have such a great team now that a real, you know, experienced restaurant kind of operating veterans, you know, that have really helped us just build in discipline and systems and, and right. training. I mean, training is kind of like the most important thing you do almost. Education. It's half the equation, certainly. And we've just gotten so much better at kind of our training systems, a lot of video training, which has been great. In terms of the, uh, you know, the aesthetic and the design and then functionality of the restaurants, there is this kind of funny thing where there's a bit of like a lagging sort of update. What you're seeing in, in our 21st restaurant is things we probably learned in locations 15 and 16 because 17, 18 and 19 were already under construction, mm. you know, back at that time. So I think you're, you know, it's kind of the state of the art, but it's a, a bit lagging and, and sort of ever evolving. We're, you know, we're always trying new things and, uh, you know, we making mistakes along the way, but especially aesthetically, we're, we're really kind of updating our look. Yep. You know, in the kitchen as well, equipment, you totally. know, placement, little things, you know, like the, just the depth and height of a work table and, and its placement, you know, right next to the vegetable sink and those right. little details that just, you know, get a little better with each new location are exciting for us. Trying to apply lean principles. Lean, yeah, and, and then marketing also. I think we've made big strides with our marketing where back in the day, you know, we kind of, we would open and then hope. <laughs> Go from <laughs> open to hoping. <laughs> That's right. I mean, we always took good locations, right? So we, I think we always had confidence that people will be exposed to us and, and that we'd build over time, but we're, you, we do a better job now of just intentionally getting the word out to nearby businesses and schools and, and uh, just kind of marketing our opening a little more. Not assuming that, that everyone knows about us or, or, cares. or cares. Right. Yeah. So not assuming that everyone's like me where you go to Dos Toros to cure your Friday morning hangover. But <laughs> would love to rewind back to when you guys were opening up your first few stores. That's a notoriously difficult process if you haven't had any experience in the multi-unit restaurant industry. Could you share some of your lessons learned or aha moments in your first few openings? Well, I mean, I think we've been served well from the start by having a really focused concept with a very limited menu and a pretty limited service style. Totally. You know, whenever you kind of make choices to limit what you do and, and be focused about your product, it just, it's just this big downstream simplification effects. Right. You talk about like the supply and there's like a, a tank rolling somewhere. There's like a six mile supply chain behind there or something like that. What it, yeah. The, just a logistical trail and, of, and, of every decision you make. Right. And every little thing you want to add to your menu Obviously, you want to have something for everybody, but you really don't, as it turns out. And we've really been our North Stars in that way. And it really came from Gordo Taqueria, where we grew up eating. It took us like four years to get comfortable with bringing lettuce into the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, it's not, we had a lot of debates about it. It's not that we didn't want people eating salad. It was that we knew people would ask for it on their burrito, which is totally fine. But back then, philosophically, we were perhaps a bit more rigid. Yeah, and you didn't want to give everyone E. coli. I get it. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. Yeah, certainly. certainly. That's, that's always Not. top of mind. But yeah, I mean, I think that first location, we learned a ton of lessons. We just, we, you know, we wanted a small location. We thought small would be A, more affordable to build, but, but B, you know, would 
kind of feel busy, even when it wasn't, have that kind of good energy. I mean, we were really trying to recreate the place we grew up eating in Berkeley. If that place had been big, we would have looked for a bigger location, I think. I think you're right. There was so much that we were just trying to recreate. And then, I mean, with the team, I, I just think we there's no substitute for just being there with your team at all hours of, of operation and just connecting and teaching and you know, inspiring your, your team to kind of to see your vision the way you do. Mm. So I feel like a lot of just being in there, there's no substitute for just being there. Right. And in terms of sort of the, the iteration on, on the product and, and the evolution of our recipes, I think a lot of it has been, and not that Leo and I aren't handy and aren't good in the kitchen. We're not really, I, I'm okay on the service line, but you know, it's basically just been about how can we make these recipes easier for people like you and I to execute. Mm, right. And you know, that's make, true. How can we make the flavors obviously as delicious as possible? But really it's, it's more so about kind of making it consistent so that anybody that wants to do a good job can come in and, and be successful. Right. That's great. And then honing in on that example of just bringing lettuce into the supply chain, how exactly do you go about comfortably scaling a supply chain, right? It's one thing if you're serving a single unit, but when you've now got 20 units, especially in different cities, how do you go about building out that supply chain from farm to table? As we've gotten larger, frankly, it's gotten easier. When we opened up Chicago, that was every new market creates new challenges because you don't have the scale in that individual market to you know bring in entire truckloads or containers. And so you're either paying a premium for freight or you're, you know, having to work a little bit with your supplier in terms of getting, you know, you bring using their tomatoes as opposed to the ones you're used to using. But basically, it's just gotten easier for us. And we've been able to really customize more and more of what we do. And, and you know, the tortillas we bring in and the, the foil that we use and, and the sliced cheese that's exactly one ounce and three and a half inches by seven inches that's sliced and separated for us. Like things have just gotten sort of more consistent and better as we've gotten more scale. I think we've, we're not big enough yet where it's, ch- it's a challenge for us. It's, it's really, at this time, a uh, strength of ours. Right. But the first location was the most challenging. <laughs> we didn't know anyone or, I mean, you know, at, back in 10 years ago, like you couldn't Google suppliers and find anything. It was such a kind of a old school industry. You know, you, you couldn't just do anything kind of at your computer. You had to like get out there and like ask people to kind of refer. And to, to introduce you to like their meat guy. Right. Like our, our whole kind of change. <laughs> Yeah, our whole chain of kind of industry connections started with just meeting our restaurant lawyer who introduced us to our contractor, who introduced us to our accountant, accountant who introduced us to, you know, a, a consultant that helps us helped us connect with a couple of vendors. Who introduced us to another restaurant owner who it then right. was his supply. Like it, it was so, so fragile. And we take it for granted now that we have this really strong network of fellow restaurant owners and, and just you know, subcontractors and, and just kind of people in, in the industry. But when you start out, you've gotten, you've just got to meet someone and start to build a network or else it's very hard to kind of wrap your head around how you're going to do it. Totally. Just to go back to that cheese example, we used to bring in these 40 pound blocks of Monterey Jack cheese. And we would basically try to cut it as evenly as possible in quarters into these 10 pound blocks. And then we had those deli slicers that you see that you use typically for slicing deli meat. And we were trying to slice these exact one ounce slices of cheese. But if you know, if you turn the knob a little too much, you end up with too thick of a slice or too thin. And it was so ridiculously inconsistent versus uh, the product now. And that creates, you know, that has a ton of cognitive load that it, that it requires as well. And it was, you know, way less consistent. But it was romantic. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> the most. 
<laughs> Got it. So it sounds like scale has actually benefited the supply chain, especially with the unit economics at play. But as you think about the restaurant experience itself, how do you think about differentiation in a really crowded market? I mean, you've got your larger brands like a Chipotle or a Cadoba, which in my totally objective and unbiased opinion, don't hold a candle to Dos Toros. But how do you guys actually think about differentiation? First of all, thank you very much. Thank you for saying that. So we think there's always clarity kind of to positioning yourself at the premium end. I mean, we really think of ourselves as best in class in that kind of group you just described of, you know, fast, casual Mexican food. I think it really starts with, with cooking, with kind of scratch cooking. The extent to which we cook from scratch every recipe that we serve with incredibly high quality ingredients yeah versus kind of the other competitors you just listed it's really it's not comparable it's, it's a very different kind of operation i think the yeah. next well that oh, please. i mean that scratch cooking and again using really great ingredients it kind of just generates its own sort of momentum and pride among mm. the team and among the staff and i think that then translates into just more care in the way that the food is physically assembled and, and the burritos are, are prepared. And, you know, you can tell when you're in an establishment whether the person or the people that are making your food, whether they care and whether they actually are taking the time and effort to make it beautifully and, and assemble it correctly. And, you know, I think our team does a, generally a great job of that because there's this pride that comes from the scratch cooking nature of the business. And I, I agree. I think another big differentiator is just is brand and design language. I mean, Chipotle less so, but some of those other ones... <laughs> They're kind of goofy. Like they're just, it's, they're not, whatever. Goofy to quite goofy. Again, this is obviously subjective, but we just feel that their design language and brand language come across as being kind of less considered or overly playful or, or kind of not playful in the right way. It just doesn't feel kind of high end to us. And, and, and so we've really tried to be really intentional with just every little piece and design the broad concept, right? We're talking about, you know, finish of wood they're using for the table or the color of leather for your stools or, or the playlist and your song choices or the paper we use for our takeout menus or yeah right and, and the look and feel of the menu boards and font choice and your forks and knives just everything you know literal touch people talk about brand touch points these are literal things you touch and just being really really careful about choosing the right ones invariably kind of has this impact on, on the guest experience even if it's not conscious that makes sense. And what I boil that down to is this maniacal focus on high quality ingredients and customer service. And that actually makes me more curious about the unit economics, right? Where if you're sourcing higher quality ingredients, then that implies a higher cost of goods sold. And if you're training and incentivizing your staff to provide higher quality service, then your labor costs theoretically go up as well. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, putting myself in the consumer seat, Dos Tours isn't much more expensive than its competitors. I mean, maybe marginally so. So then how do you guys think about profitability and unit economics when you have a higher cost base? And then as a secondary question, curious about any sort of initiatives you guys have rolled out to drive higher unit economics. Just really quickly, back to the maniacal focus. I guess, you know, from the outside, it seems like, and we do have that. And internally, I suppose we do, but, you know, we, we don't do that many things at Dos Toros. And to not have, be really obsessed with each one of these details seems ridiculous. And I, I can't understand why a business owner, especially, you know, maybe you have more than 20, maybe you have 300 restaurant locations, but essentially they're all supposed to be 
copies of each other. And if you can just nail each one of these details at the individual unit level, that can be rolled out across the bunch. So I agree with that point where like, you know, people talk about kind of micromanagement or right. being kind of, you know, I think we get asked sometimes like, well, what do you do now? You got going on 21 locations and kind of where do you spend your time? And it's like, well, we try to just spend our times in the taquerias because again, to Oliver's point, it's just however many locations you have, it's that times X and you can just work on X as much as you want and, and every detail matters. But, but in terms of uh, about the economics, I mean, the fast casual is, and I, I think will always be about volume. And it's completely and, and wholly driven by repeat business and about regulars and your regular base. And attracting and retaining regulars is the most important thing you do. And, and trying to kind of eke out margin by maybe sourcing something slightly lower quality or not spending the time and energy training your staff, it's shooting yourself in the foot. There's that quote from a burger chain in Tennessee called Pals. And it's pretty random, but they, they're awesome. And, and they actually, they won something called the Malcolm Baldridge Awards, which is basically excellence in manufacturing operations. operations. And their owner was quoted, somebody asked and they're like, pal, you're going to spend all of this time, money and energy training your staff. What if they leave you? And, uh, and pal says, what if I don't spend the time, money and energy and they stay? <laughs> right. Which um, is uh, deep. Which is deep and, uh, and speaks to, you know, investing, investing in your team, investing in winning in the long run. Right. Yeah. We definitely spend more of our time in kind of top line world than bottom line world, just trying to trying to drive volume, throughput and marketing and all, all those different kind of aspects. So like labor cost is like somewhat fixed. It's not totally variable. Right. So to the extent that you can, I mean, at least for us, so to the extent that we can, you know, do more volume, we can do a, a good margin on that. On right. That sale. It takes quite a lot of people to kind of make one burrito. <laughs> That's right. And it doesn't take that many more people to make a couple hundred burritos. And so for us, it's about creating as much value as possible for our guests by using the highest quality ingredients and not, not charging an armor leg for them. Right. And I'm glad you brought up the employee turnover conversation there. I think we've all been to, let's say McDonald's late at night, and I never blame the cashier for this at all, but it's very clear they don't want to be there. So how do you guys specifically address employee turnover? I'm curious what that metric is, but beyond that, how are you guys investing in your team to make sure that they're enjoying working at Dos Toros? Great question. So for one, we're not open late. But you know, it's, it's like, it sounds like a, not a big thing, but when we first were talking about, you know, what Dos Toros should look like and how it should operate, I mean, part of our thinking was, hey, we'll be open late and after the bar, people will come over and you know, as we were working there ourselves at all hours, we're like, well, we just don't really want to be open late. And people come come in and they're drunk and, and it puts a lot of pressure on the team. People and, feel differently about the food they eat late night. But we didn't want to be this kind of side piece, <laughs> kind of burrito. It's a, it's a taboo thing. You can't go to that place sober. It's right, right. That's my drunk food. We didn't want to be that. Anyway, that's a slightly separate point. But, yeah. but in, terms of, <laughs> in terms of team and, and kind of how, you know, culture and, and connecting, it, that's like... We spend just a ton of our time just being in the field, talking to team members. You know, 20 locations is obviously more than it used to be for us, but it's not so many that we can't just be kind of present everywhere on semi-regular basis, just talking to people and, and asking how it's going and, and being friendly. Just being nice goes such a long way. Yeah, just being kind and genuinely kind of empathetic and inquisitive goes a long way. And I mean, beyond that, as, as Leo was mentioning earlier, 
this e-learning platform that we have that's basically a video training system in all the restaurants. And it's become a huge part of what we do. And it's basically just about, there's transparency. People know what they have to do, what they have to improve on to reach the next level. And there are certifications that you can get. And there's a pretty clear path when you started those Toros for how to advance if you want to make it a career, which we obviously is the best. Right. And, and that's, I think, more than I think a lot of the competition has figured out and certainly more than we used to have figured out. And, and that's something we're always working on. We also have a big party on a boat every summer with, that, the, with the whole team. That doesn't hurt. That's fun. Yeah, we, we celebrate, you know, try to celebrate the wins with the, with the team. Well, it's the kind of thing where like, you know, we were working every day and it's just like, boy, it feels like we ought to have a party. Right. Let's have a party. And then, you know, you keep going. Year after year, you, you kind of just get a bigger boat. And uh, that's, that's been a fun. one sign waiver. <laughs> but I mean, you can still do it. Right. <laughs> so that does beg the question, though. Let's extrapolate a couple of years from now. And I think you guys will be enormously successful, which means hundreds of locations, right? I mean, two of the points you just said there lack the ability to scale, right? You guys are only two people. You can only visit so many restaurants and shake so many hands and build so many meaningful relationships with employees. When you guys get into the 300 location or 1,000 location area, right, you're, you become much more corporate by nature. And there's only so many boats and cruise lines, I guess, you could rent out in the world. But how do you guys think about continuing that familial and intimate relationship you have with all of your employees at scale? It's a good question. You know, I think the position in the company that really scales out to infinity is the district manager role where like, you know, it depends on obviously how we're able to kind of operate, but roughly, you know, between five to eight locations per district manager. So at 300 locations, you know, that's still, you know, 50 district managers and like you can genuinely connect with 50 people and, and, as long as you're kind of, they're the right people and they're passing on your energy to their coach operators and their teams in the restaurants, I think you can scale that kind of culture. And I, I think obviously there's also just like, you know, video, you can kind of come to life through, through video. And staying core to what we do. Right. And just staying focused on why it is that we exist, why we started in the first place and never losing sight of that. Leo, what's a coach operator? Sorry, I should have yeah, qualified that. Instead of GM, we call our taqueria leaders coach operators because we want them to be thinking about coaching as their kind of primary responsibility. And operating. And then operating as their other primary mm-hmm. responsibility. So small tweak there. But, but that again, that, that's something that as you get larger, you have 300 locations and somebody joins the team and they've been a general manager at however many restaurant companies right. they've worked for and they're like, coach operator. Why am I now called a coach operator? So what's that? Like, oh, this place is different. And, you know, culture lives in language. Culture lives in language. That's right. And then thinking about the business side of things, what are some KPIs and metrics you guys use to track the health of the business? I mean, obviously, we're looking at sales every day and kind of trends, you know, week over week and, and year over year, you know, in-store versus delivery versus catering, which are our three kind of most important revenue centers. I mean, SPLH is a uh, something that we used to track very closely, and we still take keep up loose iron, which is sales per labor hour, which roughly uh, tracks the sort of efficiency of the team right? Uh, and of the restaurant. We also we a lot of kind of qualitative analysis in terms of, we have, you know, we use secret shoppers and obviously we look at all kind of online reviews and try and get a sense that way of kind of, you know, the subjective experience our, our guests are having. It's a blend of a, a bunch of different kind of elements. We also, you know, candidly, we look at throughput, you know, especially in New York City, Speed is a form of service, you know, to a guest who wants to get in and out for lunch. And so 
you know, how many tickets are we doing in, in a 15 minute increment at, at the you know, peak moment of lunch? That's important for us as well. So there's different things we're kind of looking at. And I'm glad you guys mentioned delivery there as well, because we're seeing the rise of a bunch of delivery apps like DoorDash that are raising at these absurdly large valuations in the billions of dollars. And I think most restaurant owners are happy about that incremental revenue stream. But on the flip side, it's introducing new logistical headaches on the service and capacity side of operations. So how exactly do you guys think about delivery and how to balance that with the in-store experience? I mean, it's challenging, certainly. And, and, you know, if the issue is that additional delivery volume is clogging your kitchen, you know, these are good problems to have for starters. And it's about, you know, whether it's setting up an auxiliary service line at certain times of day to manage that demand and then making sure it's not set up at other times of day when, when the demand isn't there. But it's, you know, it's an ongoing challenge. I mean, certainly uh, delivery has been made much, much easier for us to do a good job because of basically kind of other third parties, specifically logistics and fulfillment, you know, having specialists that can deliver every order. And so we don't have to kind of train or, and hire and, and manage delivery bikers has mm-hmm. been a, a huge thing for us. That was the biggest. Yeah. That was huge. And then also just, you know, dealing with kind of third party tablets and, and orders and, and how do we interface them into our POS and, and have them actually automatically be rung in and, and tendered and printed and just dealing with all the logistical complexity so we can just focus on getting orders right on making um, has enabled us to actually like try and do a great job with delivery as opposed to kind of doing it grudgingly or, or poorly. So now it's become, a, you know, obviously not just for us, for the whole industry, a, a huge point of emphasis and something that we actually think we're really good at now. Right. And, and as a consumer, it's awesome right. being able to order delivery <laughs> from all these platforms and all these places. And I know that if, if a, you know, somebody fired a delivery from somewhere and it isn't right, it's unlikely that I will walk over to that place. It's a lot more likely that I will order delivery from a place that's pretty, you know, hopefully just like it. And if it's better, I'll, I'll switch. So you really need to figure out how to integrate, you know, in an organized way, this new revenue center. Yep, that makes sense. And then last question on the business side of things here. Are there any moments in time where you guys had some sort of aha moment, whether it be with the bottom line or the top line that helped drive a step function increase in growth? I wish. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's incremental for us. You know, it, the wins are, are small and they kind of add up. I mean, the biggest kind of growth drivers for us have been external in the form of PR, you know, where we specifically a New York Times review that we got a few months after opening our first location that just like doubled our business kind of, you know, overnight and uh, was a utterly changed the game for us in a wonderful way. But that was, you know, that just some kind of something good that happened and fortunate that happened for us because we were, I think, doing a good job just trying to roll each burrito well and, and delight every guest. Yeah, I feel like we had a, I totally agree. Yeah. I feel like we had a moment in our menu evolution when we were kind of getting, we were wanting to add a grain alternative. And uh, we were basically like, well, it's time to put brown rice on the menu because it's that time in our life cycle. <laughs> and uh, let's figure out how to do that. We started cooking brown rice and, and it's really hard to cook brown rice to exactly our specification. So it's, it doesn't end up at all sticky but really ends up more fluffy, which is how we love our beautiful Mexican red rice to be. And so Leo was like, well, he's like, why don't we cook farro instead of, instead of brown rice? And I laughed and I was like, we absolutely, we can't do that. It's not Mexican <laughs> for starters. And he was like, yeah, but it's delicious. 
And we started cooking farro and we added it, you know, we piloted at one of our restaurants and it was a overwhelming success. I and mean, then people loved it and people started putting it in their burritos, which wasn't dissimilar to the moment I had years ago when people were putting lettuce in their burrito. And, you know, people love lettuce in their burritos and now people love getting farro in their burritos. Even San Francisco expats that grew up and eating the mission stuff like farro in their burrito and more power to them. And that's really, I think it's been a bit of a game changer for us in terms of a, a healthy alternative grain, nothing against the rice. No, um, but it's, good. it's awesome. I should also add that uh, we figured out a way to do a little more throughput. But our fifth location, it is in a food court, and we knew it was going to get really kind of hit for lunch, where our, our previous original four locations were more, more neighborhoods where like, you know, there's a lunch rush and a dinner rush and some weekend. And, and this fifth one was really felt like we'd have to just do most of our business in that kind of two-hour lunch selling period. Mm. And we couldn't go very fast in any of our original four locations in terms of just like tickets per hour. So we tried to figure out how to go faster. And we ended up just doing a, a kind of a double service line. We just mirrored our service line and figured we could open both at the peak service. And, and then off times, we just have one open and we could kind of have that intimate experience along one line with the guests and, and not have some 30 foot long kind of cafeteria feeling service station. And that really opened things up for us. It was actually more than twice as fast because of kind of mysterious bottleneck removal, kind of like a two lane highway instead of a one lane highway. Like right. if there's a slow truck or an accident or whatever, something happens. a math equation where like the Y is just above the X. It's like two, Y to the X, you know what I'm saying? That was our, like, <laughs> that was our beautiful mind <laughs> moment. And, uh, and, it, and it really actually allowed us to, to take different kinds of locations, you know, higher rent locations in, in Midtown where it's all about lunch and kind of make hay more during that selling period. From a real estate standpoint, that really kind of unlocked Manhattan for us. Right. That's really great. I'm also really happy to hear the Faro story because I always get it when I go through the line to give myself a semblance of being healthy after jamming an entire burrito in my in my body. <laughs> well, I was awesome. You know, our burritos are responsibly portioned and, and it, you know, they're, they're the right size. Yeah. So I'm smaller than a, than a mission style super. Than, and the mission is right size. Kind of right in between. Yeah. Goldilocks. I, I love when someone comes in and orders a super burrito. Though. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. When my friends visit from the Bay, they come in and always order super burritos. <laughs> even when they're in town for a couple of days, my friends. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I can substantiate that where if I go to a taqueria deep in the mission in SF at three in the morning, I leave feeling like I'm pregnant just given the sheer size of those burritos. But if I have a Dos Toros burrito, I generally won't fall asleep on my desk. There you That's go. That's funny. But guys, would love to shift to the last part of the podcast, which is entitled Pattern Recognition. I'm curious, what are some of the consistent patterns you guys see across successful multi-unit businesses? Focus, again, in terms of kind of knowing what they are, understanding what their offering is and where they kind of fit into the marketplace from a value and flavor perspective. But I think focus really comes from passion. Like it's hard to, your focus will be arbitrary unless it's informed by, you know, something you really want or need or, or love and, and have a strong opinion on. So I just think, I think, yeah, I would totally agree with focus and kind of marry that with passion as a, a really important element. I think uh, yeah. wellness seems to be kind of staking around for sure. <laughs> and I haven't seen a concept that isn't at least geared somewhat towards wellness really kind of have much staying power over the last several years. Right. Totally. I mean, I think for us, a pattern that's come up across the course of our kind of time building Dos Toros has been kind of embracing our outsider status mm. or embracing our kind of 
not knowing and, and beginner mind and, you know, all those kind of day one cliches, but they're real, obviously. And, you know, Dos Toros was a day one company like in the truest sense because we just didn't know anything. And that's allowed us to, I think, take a clean sheet of paper to some aspects of, of kind of culture design or brand design that, that have set us apart. And I, I just think in general, whenever we have a kind of a, a big question to ask ourselves or something, an interesting kind of thing we want to think about, we try to really just start at zero of like, well, what's the point of this? And, and what's interesting that we could kind of try that might be a little different. Right. And kind of juxtaposing that the focus that I mentioned before is a willingness and an appetite to evolve. And the concepts that I've seen be the most successful mm. have kind of disrupted themselves more than any other concept. Right. And, you know, maybe they're not changing their entire cuisine or offering, but they're trying things all the time. Right. And concepts that stay kind of stagnant and don't try new things, you know, they, they do, they get left behind. Right. And sometimes it's subtle. I think sometimes the guest wouldn't even know this that you've done, that you've, you know, renovated the, the wall finish and, and are now serving Faro or. Things that might seem like small details to a guest qualifies. What are some good examples of concepts that have done that? That have evolved? Yeah. I mean, Sweet Green is a company that I have to mention right now. Just that, you know, their bowls are hexagonal and super weird now. (laughs) And like that came from them having this issue with the metal bowl and you have to put your time, you have to clean the metal and the whole thing. And like... I remember the first time they came out with those, it was like an Eater article. And it was like, these bowls are like, What is this platter? I don't need a meal. It's not a meal for my whole family. It's just my salad. Right. And, uh, you know, eventually they iterated and got it right. And, you know, chop salad, dig in. These concepts are, are they're constantly trying things and, and kind of updating. Yeah. Got it. That makes sense. And then as you guys think about your own personal decision making, are there any mental models or patterns that you follow yourself? I mean, there's, there's always a tension between like kind of going with your gut and just trying to stay intuitive and like actually gathering feedback and listening to the viewpoints of kind of everyone else in the room. I think we've made some strides with that. Oliver and I, it's tough because we, we have each other. We have each other. And I think a lot of founders, you know, it's, it's just them and, and they really need to reach out to their team to kind of gather, you know, viewpoints and ideas. And we kind of spend a lot of time together and talk a lot and hit the ball back and forth a lot. And, and so we, we can arrive kind of to the rest of our team with kind of these often like fully baked ideas, which are maybe suboptimal or, or just don't aren't inspiring in terms of getting kind of buy-in and collaboration. So yeah. we, we've really tried to get better at that. We have, but you know, one theme and one model is that if we agree on something, we typically think it's kind of the right course. And, and we don't agree on everything. We really don't. But you know, we have again, the same North Star, right? which is that, that mission style burrito. And, you know, that's kind of is the foundation. Right, we're pretty good at getting to agreement. I think. And if we can't, then that's a good sign that something is something's more complex and spend more time on it. And we've got a great team around us that really does help us problem solve and shows us points of view that we, neither of us can consider because we, you know, certainly have bond thoughts. Totally. And there's times, you know, you really don't need to reinvent the wheel. And, you know, if, if there's a way of doing something that we haven't been exposed to, you know, we, we should just do that. Hmm. Yeah, we, we said early on, you know, we, together we have enough inexperience for the whole team. <laughs> and uh, we can handle all the inexperience. And we'll let everyone else know what they're doing. And plenty of times we've both agreed on something and been and wrong. wrong. <laughs> for sure. But then, but then you can just, you know, generally speaking, it's a two-way decision right. street and you can just change your decision. And then last question for you guys here is, what is a recent book you guys have read and why has it changed your perspective? 
I'm going to say sapiens. I know everyone says sapiens or, or probably or thinks it, but I don't know, just the extent to which culture is kind of arbitrary and, and manufactured and that we all, the whole social contract around the way the world is and, and institutions and laws and, and how it all works and just the extent to which that's imagined in this kind of shared collective way, I thought was fascinating. One of my favorite takeaways from Sapiens, since we're on the topic of food, is that we didn't domesticate grain. To some degree, if you think about the evolutionary game and populating your species as much as possible around the world, grain actually domesticated us, which I thought was a really interesting take. Mm, totally. That's true. Are we happier than we were before we domesticated grain? Well, well. not in that interim period. <laughs> <laughs> for me, I recently uh, read a book called Shogun which is this pretty badass book about uh, <laughs> this British ship pilot that gets shipwrecked in uh, Japan at uh, the beginning of the, I believe, 17th century. And it's about him kind of navigating his way through samurai culture and learning the lay of the land. And it's deeply psychological and just really interesting. And I highly recommend Shogun to anyone looking for uh, a cool historical fiction. Can you give us a business takeaway from Shogun? If possible, you should build a fleet of ships <laughs> on the early on the earlier side. <laughs> We're well said. Like sapiens meant to tell me about that too. All right. All right. Well, Leo and Oliver, it's been a total blast having you guys on the show. I appreciate you taking some time. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Once again, a big thank you to Leo and Oliver for joining us today. If you're looking for inspiration during your next lunch break, I would strongly encourage you head over to Dos Toros. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you gave a quick rating and review as well as sent any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can also check out show notes and more on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com and reach me on Twitter at John Heasy or on Instagram at John G. Hu. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week.